Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, September 9th. A 25-year-old river guide from Colorado is racking up hundreds of thousands of views on TikTok, explaining the mega drought in the Colorado River Basin. The reasons for the drought and potential solutions can be hard to wrap one's head around, but Western Water Girl makes it snarky and fun. KUNC's Luke Runyon reports. Tia Leto honed her short, snappy explanations of the West water problems guiding rafting trips down the Animas River in her hometown of Durango. She'd have just a couple minutes in between shouting paddle commands to the tourists in her boat, and after running the same stretch of river a few times a day for months... You get to the point where you're like, okay, I know I'm going to need to call a command in exactly 45 seconds. Like, what story can I tell in the meantime? And I'll tell you, the better stories you tell, the better tips you get. That same formula works on TikTok. Just trade the tips for likes. On the app, Leto goes by Western Water Girl. And her clips regularly garner hundreds of thousands of views. The Colorado River Basin states had exactly 31 days to come up with a plan to reduce their water consumption by 25%. In her videos, Leto, with her straight brown hair and cat eye makeup, sits in front of the camera news anchor style. Photos of the Southwest's shrinking reservoirs pop up behind her. And hopefully, if enough of us are talking about it, then water managers and elected officials in the Southwest might feel pressure to actually change the system. The Colorado River has been her focus since she started on the app earlier this spring. Tens of millions of people depend on the river, and it's facing a serious shortfall in supply. Leto says the concepts can be hard to grasp at first, which is why she avoids all the jargon that comes with the heavily engineered systems used to plumb the arid west. Like, I get comments that are like, wow, you just connected a lot of dots for me. Like, I I understood pieces of this, but you're the first person who explained it in terms that I can understand. Leto grew up rafting the streams of southwestern Colorado and says one event in particular was formative. She was working at a local outfitter one morning in 2015 when the sheriff's office called. They said, I don't know what you're planning on doing today, but you're not going to be able to go rafting. A plume of neon orange wastewater released from the Gold King Mine into the Animas River was making its way toward Durango. In Colorado, a crew working for the Environmental Protection Agency accidentally released a million gallons of toxic sludge into a river. As the news spread, Leto, 17 years old at the time, found herself fielding calls from journalists all over the world. I had no idea, like, the scale of the issue, nor what to say to those people. (laughs) Since going viral, Leto's TikToks have earned praise from others in the world of water. Bronson Mack is in communications for the Southern Nevada Water Authority. He came across Leto just by scrolling and says a partnership to help spread the agency's conservation message could be in the cards. And more than anything, the impact that we saw with that is how direct and accurate the information was. Leto says she sees a way to make this a career path. More water agencies and environmental groups are reaching out with offers to collaborate, turning her hobby into a money-making opportunity. 
And she says the timing is right because she's already found an audience. It's like, yes, it is complicated, but the public deserves to understand it too. And that's why it's really important to break it down into like small bite-sized pieces. Especially, she says, because the region is reaching a moment of reckoning on water management. And finding a good solution will require everyone to know how it works. I'm Luke Runyon in Durango, Colorado. Todd Solomon was officially selected as the 24th president of the University of Colorado system this year. He served as interim president since July 2021. Todd grew up in Colorado and graduated from CU Boulder. KUNC's Bo Baker spoke with him recently to find out what he's working toward for the CU system. How do you approach the job on a daily basis? You know, I approach each day with keeping students uh, in the front of my mind. That is our primary job, is to educate the people of Colorado and to do outstanding research. So I think about our students, our faculty, and our staff every day. When you visit our campuses and meet with our students, meet with our faculty, meet with our staff, and you see the incredible people that make up the CU team, it's exciting and it's inspiring, and that's what I think about every day. What are some of your big goals for the CU system? Specifically, I'd like to know how you're looking at affordability for students and diversity and inclusion. When I, when I think about the things that, that we need to focus on the most, to really look at, first, student success. You know, our job isn't just to enroll students, but it's to get them across the finish line, to retain them, and to provide them with the outstanding education, but also services that they need to be successful. We also have a gap between the graduation and retention rate for our total student population compared to our underrepresented students. I want to close that gap. Another is diversity. You know, I, I think it's incredibly important that the University of Colorado reflect the diversity of Colorado. And when we talk about diversity at CU, we talk about it broadly. Of course, it, it includes uh, ethnic diversity, racial diversity, but it also includes Uh, political philosophy, political affiliation. It includes LGBTQ+. It includes veteran status, disability status. Uh, We have a lot of work to do. We we don't reflect the the diversity of Colorado when we're talking about our our students, faculty, and staff. The other uh, focus that that we're really um, digging in on is outreach, you know, connecting to the people of Colorado, listening to what they want from CU, listening to what they think about what we do and sharing with them what we think we can do for them. And then finally on on affordability, we are working hard to make degrees uh, more affordable for people by providing financial aid and by also ensuring that students have the opportunity to to make a degree cheaper for themselves by bringing credits to the table uh, through AP credits at high school or community college credits. We're working very hard to make it easier to transfer community college credits to our campuses, and also just trying to communicate about the actual cost. I think that there's a disconnect. People think that it's more expensive to get a college degree than it is. That doesn't mean that we think it costs what it should. It's it's more expensive than it should be. You know, Colorado is 45th in in the nation when it comes to higher education funding. And so we absolutely have challenges in the state when it comes to state funding. 
Where do you stand on former visiting Professor John Eastman's association with CU Boulder? Was that a mistake on the part of the university in the first place to bring Eastman in? That was a mistake. Clearly, that was a bad choice. Uh, John Eastman's behavior is appalling, and it's embarrassing that he was ever associated with the University of Colorado. And, uh, and I regret that we ever employed him. But it's incredibly important to separate him out from the good work that is done by the Benson Center. You know, the Benson Center does help us convene those diverse voices on the campus so that we can have conversations that reflect a wide variety of ideas and perspectives. You know, if we're going to make progress in this country, we need to learn to listen to each other and to hear different points of view. Out of 39 candidates for this job, including 13 women and 13 persons of color, you, a white male, were the sole finalist for the position. How does that square with CU's messaging on diversity? So I can't speak to the process, of course, because I was a candidate and I didn't run the process. Uh, But I can tell you that that was a major uh, question for me throughout the process. You know, what is my commitment to diversity and what have I done and what will I do and what is my vision for the University of Colorado in that area? But I also know that the proof will be in the pudding on that topic. You know, what will I do? What will we do together to advance our work in that space? And um, it's going to take some time, but that doesn't mean that we can't get to it right away. So there are things that we can put in place today and tomorrow that will help us make progress on that over time. And I will be judged by that. The regions will be judged by that. And the campuses will be held accountable to make progress. You grew up in Colorado, graduated from CU Boulder. You served in the state legislature. What do you value about this place? What makes Colorado special? So I grew up in Littleton and I went to Grand Junction for the first time. And just looking around Grand Junction, just physically looking at the place, it looks just so different when you're out there and you're looking at the Grand Mesa and you're looking at the environment and the mountains of Grand Junction compared to... um, the, the front range compared to the I-70 corridor in Summit County and Eagle and all that. And then you go to eastern Colorado and you're in Lamar, La Junta, Fort Morgan, Sterling, Pueblo, and you see the extraordinary geographic diversity of our state. And then you learn that the diversity of our people reflect the diversity of that geography. Our people are just as different as our geography. And it's this incredibly rich heritage that we have in the state and in different points of view and different perspectives in different places. And I love that about Colorado. And I am so proud to be a Coloradan. I'm proud of the University of Colorado and what an honor it is to get to, to serve our state in this capacity. CU President Todd Solomon. Todd, appreciate your time today. Thanks for speaking with me. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. You can find this interview at our website, KUNC.org. When a student starts missing school, things can go sideways. It can be hard for them to keep up with coursework, pass classes, and even to graduate. 
In Colorado, about 26% of students are chronically absent, missing 10% or more of school days. Anne Shimke, a senior reporter at Chalkbeat Colorado, recently reported on how one Colorado district is trying to get students back into the classroom. She spoke with KUNC's Bo Baker. You reported on the Greeley-Evans District in Weld County and specifically Northridge High School. What's going on there with absenteeism? Yeah, so um, we should probably start pre-pandemic. Um, chronic absenteeism was around 35% in the district, which is high. The first full year of the pandemic, it went up to 40%. That's obviously a huge number of kids who are not coming to school regularly. In your article, you gave us a fascinating look at a world I think a lot of people don't even know exists. Uh, You have Greeley Evans contracting with this group out of Denver, Zero Dropouts. You describe the job of these attendance advocates as part detective work, part social work, and part paperwork. So take us through the day of someone working for Zero Dropouts. What are they doing to get students back on track? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are several things that they're doing. So for example, one of the attendance advocates I followed at Northridge High School, she just started out her morning calling kids or calling families rather on the no-show list. So I think there were four or five dozen kids on the list. So she just kind of went down the list and just called, left messages, tried to reach people. The kids that they couldn't reach that way, a pair of attendance advocates from Northridge later in the day, they went and did home visits. So they would just knock on doors and kind of say, hey, we were expecting your child to show up at school. Where are they? So it was a lot of just like tracking down and kind of making sure kids didn't fall through the cracks. They would also even just do things like monitor the hallways during passing periods. So another kind of FaceTime exposure, most of them went by their first name. So they generally didn't have quite the like feeling of a teacher-student relationship. It was a little more casual and perhaps a a bit more approachable for certain students. Yeah, I thought it was telling in your story that one of the advocates was talking about how just by pronouncing a student's name correctly, she was able to earn her trust and kind of move on from there. It seems like they're occupying this space as part mentor, part friend, not quite authority figure. Yeah, and when I talked to students, I felt like what they were saying is, they're nice to me. I like talking to them. I like having a conversation with them. They weren't really framing it in the sense of they made me come to school and they tracked me down when I was truant. They, it really seemed like they were a little bit more just feeling connected to an adult, whereas maybe they hadn't previously. With all this in mind, how successful has this program been for Greeley Evans? I think it's hard to say. One thing that was really interesting to me is how many metrics and pieces of data they collect about kids. I mean, everything from chronic absences to who's getting D's and F's. So that's like a kind of a red flag system for them. But I think that's a question I can't answer in terms of how successful is it. They're in the second year of a three-year contract. It might not be clear yet what the outcomes are. 
You mentioned this is a three-year contract. It's being paid for with federal COVID stimulus dollars. So after three years, can the district pay for this program without that federal money? When that money disappears, I don't know that the district, like a lot of districts who are using that stimulus money for extra staff, I just don't know where they're going to find the money. I don't think they'd want to take teachers out of classrooms to fund this, even if it is very successful. And thanks so much for covering this and giving us your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Ann Shimke, a senior reporter at Chalkbeat, Colorado, speaking with KUNC's Bo Baker. You can find her reporting at chalkbeat.org. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday, so please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If there's a story you'd like to hear us cover on Colorado Edition, send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burrows. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thank you for spending some time with KUNC's Colorado Edition. See you on Wednesday for a special episode.